0: Good morning. I'm Ann Schindler, and this is First Coast Connect. Before we get rolling, here are three things you need to know today. First, Florida lawmakers are back in Tallahassee for a special session. Governor Ron DeSantis called them back, saying he wants them to pass sanctions against Iran, a move his critics say is an effort to bolster his presidential bid. Second, St. John's County Sheriff's deputy shot and killed a man near Ponte Vedra High School this weekend. The sheriff said the suspect was involved in an armed burglary before the shooting, which occurred as thousands of kids were playing sports at nearby Davis Park. And the families of three Brunswick fishermen held a vigil this weekend, three weeks after they were reported missing. The Coast Guard called off its search after combing 94,000 square miles over four states. The men's families have hired private crews to continue the search. Today, A closer look at the state of downtown. The recently published 2023 State of Downtown Report offers a standard point of reference for the overall vitality of downtown. We're joined today by Lori Boyer, CEO of the Downtown Investment Authority. We want you to join the conversation. Call us at 549-2937, tag us on X at FCC on air, or send an email to Connect at wjct.org. You can also message us on the First Coast Connect Facebook and Instagram pages. Welcome, Lori Dorman. I did that earlier. I work with a man previously named Lori Dorman, and I'm saying hello, Lori Dorman, but hello, Lori Boyer. Thank you for being here. Thanks, Anne. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. So Lori Boyer has worked as a land use lawyer and a real estate investor. You served two terms in city council. Correct. Including as council president, and now you are the chief executive officer of DIA. So this report is published by Downtown Vision. Can you explain the relationship between your agency, DIA, Downtown Vision, the city, and private developers? So
1: let's start with Downtown Vision, who publishes the report. They are a business improvement district, so they are also created by the city government. They were established by that, but they really report to and were voted on there into being um, by the business owners and property owners within their district. Their boundaries are smaller than ours. Um, DIA, Downtown Investment Authority, also created by City Council. We are a community redevelopment agency, fancy term. It is a state statute created entity that receives a tax increment from the growth we see within downtown. That tax increment can then be reinvested with incentives, with capital projects, things like that for those. Um, in terms of, we are. A hybrid agency in that we are semi-autonomous. We have a board of directors. Um, the board of directors hires me or hires the CEO. So we have some continuity beyond changes in mayoral administrations. That was part of the impetus for the creation of DIA. But we are housed in City Hall. We function as a city department. And so we're closely affiliated with city government in the implementation of everything we do.
0: So, having seen this report, um, can you just give us an overall state of downtown according to its findings?
1: Um, okay. High level. Um, we are seeing substantial momentum in growth in tax values downtown. So, last year, the our boundaries, which are 3.9 square miles of downtown, Um, We saw about a $260 million growth in taxable value and and about a $200 million growth a year before. That's about a 16% overall growth rate, which we're seeing growth all over the county, but this certainly exceeds that rate, um, which is a big positive thing for downtown. Um, Growth in residential development, number of units being delivered, and also retaining a high occupancy rate in downtown. So we're growing that residential population. We're seeing a growth in retail establishments and um, reoccupancy of vacant storefronts. So that's great. Um, We've seen a decline in office um, occupancy, as would be expected that we're seeing nationwide. Um, Pretty much recovered on our hotel and visitors. Still a little below pre-COVID levels, but significant uptick over the last couple of years.
0: Okay. That's a a great summary. So how is the data compiled for this report,
1: or how are the data? Is it purely empirical? Who's surveyed? Um, So, Downtown Vision does the research effort to collect the data. We are one of the stakeholders that they seek information from. Most of the data is purely empirical, and the sources are identified in the State of Downtown Report. There are a few things that are hand count um, that Downtown Vision actually handles, either by survey. So, some of it's survey data, where the satisfaction numbers that you see in the report are surveys that they send out. But they also hand count number of residents. And by hand count, I mean they reach out to the actual apartment complex and ask how many residents there are and do it that way because what we find is the census tract data and other more generalized data sources that you can get for downtown are highly inaccurate. Interesting.
0: At that level of specificity. Correct. Interesting. Okay. Um, so the DIA, the the Downtown Vision Report, it's designed to track indicators of urban vitality. Um, it uses things like residential demand, like you said, office market and employment base, um, tourism health. Um, what are the bright spots
1: overall in that report? So I would say for us, for DIA, we have been focused very much on building a residential population downtown. Let's go back five years eight years. And when you're looking at downtown, we had then 56,000 people who worked downtown and very few residences or residents who lived downtown. So we had big commute um, going into and out of downtown. And we also didn't take advantage of that uh, day and night and weekend opportunity Mm -hmm. if you have residents downtown. So we were focused on that. We've been incentivizing that. We've now seen it grow to 4,600 units, 7,600 residents. And State of Downtown says there are 1,500 units under construction in downtown. Our number is 1,200. Nevertheless, that number of units that are currently under construction, those are not speculative, will bring us over that 10,000 resident number, which was always kind of the, the initial benchmark. To start to become sustainable for retail establishments to return, we've kind of moved the benchmark now. Now we're looking at fifteen.
0: yeah. I was looking back at some of the earlier reports that were compiled. Um, and that ten thousand resident goal, I mean, it really has been a goal for so long, at least two decades. And so the growth has been incremental. Um you know, in two thousand and nine, there were under three thousand residents downtown, which is kind of remarkable. Um, and so now it's
1: uh, up to almost 8,000? Uh, 76, 7,700, depending on which schedule you're looking at. So initially, for, for our purposes, if we could get 300 units a year, that was really good. We are now to, this, to the point with over 1,000 units under construction, we're going to be delivering somewhere between five or 600 units a year at the current rate. Um, which is significantly more. And and as I said, we're within probably 18 months of all of those units that are under construction being in the market. The other good news for downtown is we've retained a 97% plus occupancy rate. So everything that we can deliver, people move into. It's not like once you have more units, then the occupancy falls off. I, I, and,
0: I think it's interesting that you say 18 months, that those will sort of be delivered, those properties. Because I know, I mean, some of them are certainly under development. Some I haven't seen quite shovel ready um,
1: in terms of the ones that are listed. So all of them are actually under construction. So if you looked at, so for example, Doro is one of those that's in that list. Yeah, sure. And Doro's almost finished. I see that one, Doro yeah. will be finished. And I mean, actually, they're pre-leasing right now. They have the pool and some rooftop things to do, but they'll be finished by March. But something like the Union Terminal warehouse that will be ready, you think? Well, so Union Terminal is not in my number, in part because... It's in the report. Right. Okay. Which is why I use 1200. I gotcha, gotcha. And that's because really it's outside of our boundary. There's a corner of the building that's within the downtown boundary. Um, We treated it that way for historic purposes, but when I'm looking at my 3.9 square miles that I deal with, the residences are really not within the boundary.
0: I want... Tell me about the boundary, because I know after this report came out, there was a little pushback from uh, TU columnist Nate Monroe about what constitutes downtown. He was saying they're crediting, you know, there's a new uh, grocery store downtown. And he was saying, you know, it's the Whole Foods that they're talking about under construction at the site of the old times union building. Is that really downtown? It's Brooklyn. What is the boundary there?
1: So downtown for our purposes, and it's been that way since the 1980s. This is not a new creation. Um, the boundary basically is State and Union Street on the north, I 95 on the west, goes all the way over to Matthews Bridge. Um, and on the South Bank, it is I 95 as it curves across the South Bank. So it includes Brooklyn, as in terms of neighborhoods, as we call them Brooklyn, La Villa, City Center, North Core, Cathedral, Sports and Entertainment, Working Waterfront, and South Bank.
0: Right. I saw all those marked off. Okay. So in, in, the view of that definition, which is the standard definition, that does include that area.
1: It does. And it ha- as I said, it hasn't changed since the 80s. The downtown zoning overlay has been that entire area, and the tax increment districts have been that entire area. S- now, clearly, in the public view, the city center, where we're talking about city hall down to the former landing site, have been the core and the center of downtown. So
0: I want to pick up a call here. We have got uh, Shamari on line one. Um, wanted to talk about residents downtown and the uh, goal that you were talking about. Good morning. Shamari, go Good ahead with your morning.
2: question. Good morning. Hey, so in the uh, past mayoral campaign, we, we heard a lot about 10,000 residents downtown to spur development. And at, at the age of 42 and having uh, grown up in Jacksonville and having lived in, having lived in other cities around the nation and, and with extensive travel, and working and I've worked in zoning and land use in Atlanta. and so my question is about the residents like you know you see in Jacksonville it seems like we we, we plan and we do things, but it's mostly short term fixes. like you know when we expand the lanes of traffic we, we, we don't we're not actually it doesn't appear to me that we're planning for fifth to you know fit 10, 15, 25. 30 years ahead. So in the big picture, when you have ShadCon and other developers, you know, with these massive ideas, 10,000 residents downtown just doesn't seem to be um, commiserate with the goals. So my question is, um, with because da- I remember when Downtown Vision came online years ago, I believe it was Mayor Delaney. Um, and And I remember they had a master plan. And it seemed like you know, things were moving in the right direction for planning. But when I hear uh, the, the projection of 10,000 residents downtown, it just seems like we're selling ourselves short. Well, what about is that, that
1: Lori? La- yeah, thank you, Shmari. What about that, Lori? I totally agree. Um, 10,000 was a benchmark set many years ago. And the idea of that benchmark is when you get to 10,000, retail will follow. Because there's enough concentration of residents that you can support a neighborhood pharmacy, a grocer, um, and other retail establishments. Little changed with COVID and the changes in the retail industry, which is why we're saying it's more like 15,000 now. But nevertheless, that is not, if you looked at the downtown master plan and the ultimate goal for residents in downtown, and we do have a 30-year lens on in our document, um, that's not the ultimate goal. That's not where we ultimately hope to get. But I will say... Um, We will not have the density in downtown Jacksonville that you see in some metropolitan urban areas where all of that is in high rises because the cost to build high rises is much higher than our rents will bear. And so what you're seeing here is seven story, nine story, something like Vista Brooklyn, things that are proposed in Gateway, those types um, of developments just don't yield as many residents on a block.
0: Interesting. And so what is the ultimate goal if you had to put a number on it at this point, if it's not 10,000?
1: Oh, I think we can easily serve 30,000 residents downtown and accommodate them on the various parcels that we're looking at. But that number could even be higher depending on where the economics trend in the next 10 years. So we got a question on X. Duke uh, wants to know, does the recent class action lawsuit
0: against JWB affect the grant process uh, for, for the Downtown Investment Authority? Are we granting money to companies that have unfair practices?
1: Um, so I would say the first answer is no. It doesn't affect the grant process for an incentive because our incentives are based strictly on the particular development project and the cost of construction of that project it has nothing to do with the actual um, renting policies or things like that. So, if you're referring to the class action, I'm, sh- I'm I presume it was the issue regarding the um, rental screening application and the use of the algorithm by the rental screening company, which I believe is not just used by JWB but used nationwide. So, those types of after development, because they could sell the property to someone else at that point. It's not about who the particular developer is. In terms of delivering product, they're delivering the product.
0: So it's not about who their tenants are necessarily or who they're renting to. It's about the- Or even who the landlord is. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Okay. So I wanted to ask you about a couple of things that have been getting buzz about downtown. One is drinking on the Riverwalk. Talk about that. And does that weigh into your calculus of you know, the stage
1: that downtown is at? So the, yes, the answer is yes, it does weigh into the calculus. It's all about that vibrancy and vitality that you mentioned at the beginning. And this is something that the state legislature authorized perhaps a decade ago. Tampa has it on their Riverwalk. A number of folks from here were there a few years ago and we're suggesting that we do it. Um, what it allows is establishments that are located directly adjacent to the Riverwalk to sell alcohol in designated cups that then the patrons can walk on the Riverwalk with those cups. So why that's important is one of the big complaints we hear all the time is there are no food and beverage establishments on the Riverwalk. There are no places to go. We want places to go. So this is one more thing that encourages those establishments to locate on the Riverwalk because it's a benefit they have that elsewhere may may not be. We made a change a year ago um, to allow, with the help of the state legislature, to allow food and beverage establishments in downtown with only 50 seats to get a liquor license. That's lower than the standard elsewhere. But those are types of things that we support to encourage the establishment of those facilities.
0: What's the significance of the special cups?
1: Um, Just so that they only are from the designated vendor. So, actually, um, you can't go across a street, a public street with them. So, they're only properties that are immediately contiguous to the Riverwalk that have a liquor license that can then have the cup and use the cup to dispense the beverage. That, and then that beverage is, that cup is recognizable on the Riverwalk as permissible.
0: Gotcha. So, you can't just walk around with a beer that you bought somewhere else. Or... Correct.
1: Are there going to be bathrooms provided? Well... As part of all of these parks that are being constructed on the Riverwalk, yes. Each one of them has bathrooms. Um, Right now, I will tell you on the South Bank, the one bathroom is closed. And so at Sip and Stroll, the Doubletree opens their bathroom. And they would be one of the vendors that could sell beverages, alcoholic beverages. So I think that there'll be interim solutions, and then the permanent solutions would be there will be bathrooms at the Friendship Fountain Park when it is newly completed and reopened. Um, there's also another bathroom on the South Bank, and we can go up and down the North Bank talk about where they'll all be.
0: I want to come back to Friendship Fountain in just a second, but uh, we'd like to invite you to join our conversation. We're here with Lori Boyer of the Downtown Investment Authority. You can call us at 549-2937. You can tag us on X at FCC on Air, or, or send an email to First Coast Connect at wjct.org. You can also reach us through the First Coast Connect Facebook Instagram pages. Friendship Fountain,
1: it seems like it's been under construction forever. Am I wrong? No, you're not wrong. Um, So first, thanks for asking that question because it's important that I distinguish DIA's role and, and how we work on these projects. So construction of all of the city road projects and the park projects are the responsibility of Public Works and the Parks Department. And while we advocate for those, we help um, fund some of those projects, we aren't the person that enters into the contract with the contractor and can control the timing of all of that. Not your fault. <laughs> well, um, I hesitate to say it that way, but I, but I don't have real dates. So that's the real question here is I can't promise a date because I am I can't deliver that date. But what I will say is... The Mayor Deacon's administration is very focused on how we accelerate those. We have a working group with parks and public works and procurement and general counsel's office to kind of dissect a series of projects that have taken a very long time and understand what the bottlenecks were and how we correct those. And then we've got a series of a couple new projects that we are very focused on accelerating and making sure that they deliver more timely. So I think that if there was ever an opportunity to change the timelines, we're going to see it.
0: Yeah, maybe a reset on some of that.
1: Right. But I do think that that project is nearing completion. And again, um, with that caveat, I will say that I'm hearing that the fountain itself, I know it was running for Florida Georgia weekend Mm -hmm. and will be opening in early 24. The fountain, the surrounding park will probably take a year to complete. So... Just in
0: terms of the appearance of downtown, I know that there's a lot of discussion about, you know, there's a lot of vacant space downtown. There's a lot of open space downtown. And it wasn't a terribly dense, you know, landscape. In some ways, there was a lot of vacancies anyway. But to have all these large patches of just straight up vacant lots, how does that affect the perception of downtown as like a, you know, growing, booming, bustling area versus a place that is maybe seeing reversals in growth?
1: I do think it affects it. Um, There is a perception that there is a lot more public property available for redevelopment than there is. Most of the public property downtown is being used for municipal purposes. So City Hall or the courthouse or the stadium or the parking lots surrounding the stadium. So those are not really available for sale or redevelopment. And then what did happen is when in response to public demand for more public access and recreational opportunities on the riverfront, we took parcels out of redevelopment inventory and committed them to parks and did the design competition for Riverfront Plaza and have now are working on the design of Shipyards West. Those look like vacant lots um, or the courthouse property looks like a vacant lot. But in that case, there's actually a redevelopment proposal. On the other two, there are parks that are in design. Riverfront Plaza is under construction. Um, They start with infrastructure. So they've started with the road. The bulkhead will be the next part you'll see cranes out there working on. And that happens all, you, you know, you can't build the playground and you can't build the amenities till you get the infrastructure in. And when do you feel like some of that
0: vibe is going to really start to be manifest? I mean, you know, I would guess some people look at the Four Seasons project as something that will really, you know, be a game changer, at least in the perception and the appearance of downtown Jacksonville. But what are, what are the projects that you look for as as true signals of downtown vitality?
1: Well, I think delivery of those, I think delivery of Riverfront Plaza as a park and delivery of Shipyards West as a park, which should coincide with the timing of the Four Seasons development and hopefully be close in timing to the delivery of the new MOSH project, would be a major impact on the North Bank waterfront. If you're looking, I know Nate doesn't like to include Brooklyn, but if you're looking at Brooklyn right now, you see the construction well underway on the Whole Foods and the new residential there, and that's really building out the riverfront in Brooklyn. So I do think that there are projects that are being delivered that will add to vibrancy. That project I mentioned in Brooklyn has a waterfront restaurant. There's also another waterfront restaurant coming in Brooklyn. Those will add to that vitality, but so will these park spaces. I
0: just want to push back on that a little bit because I've been here long enough to know when, you know, Metro Park and Kids Campus and, you know, the shell that was used for concerts and events. I mean, that was sort of what we're looking to do again, in the shipyards West area, right? is kind of create this point of access where people will be able to go and enjoy the river and have a playground. And, uh, why would, why is
1: this different? Why did that fail? So I would say that that was a pretty vibrant place once upon a time. Um, For a minute. Yeah, it it was. was. (laughs) There were a lot of activities and one of the things that I think we have to do differently is we have to program and maintain those spaces. And one of the things that we have failed to do is to adequately fund that programming maintenance. And instead, we, we do a great job of building the capital project, and then we turn our back on it. Um, Friendship is an example of that, where we have renovated it, but not then maintained it or fully renovated it, just kind of did the cosmetics. So I think this, the difference here is we now have a conservancy which I'm very supportive of having that organization, you know, fully stood up as an entity that can help run the programming and maintenance. DIA through the Downtown Economic Development Fund is helping to fund annual maintenance contributions from that tax increment. So we recognize the importance of that. We're also asking developers. And in the case of the Four Seasons, Khan volunteered $200,000 a year to go, go toward the maintenance of Metropolitan Park. So we are looking at that kind of ongoing um, capacity to really make a difference in those facilities once they are completed.
0: I want to talk to you about business vacancies, because that is one area of the report that reported a significant decline. So I think the overall downtown business infrastructure there has a vacancy rate of 25
1: percent. So I'm going to caution the use of the word business vacancy because that would be inclusive of the retail, and we're seeing the retail go up, uh, whereas what you're seeing is commercial office go down. So it's the commercial office vacancy that is up now to 26. That is rather expected but definitely concerning, and we knew that was coming as a result of what happened with COVID Mm -hmm. and hybrid work and people consolidating space, reducing the amount of office space they're using very focused on the backfill of those as opposed to building new office space. But we also held a symposium a week ago on conversion of office buildings to residential and brought in some architects from L.A. and D.C. and and engineers and others who were looking at the building stock we had and what the opportunities for those conversions are. Because, again, if we can take some of that vacant inventory out of the market, that will help support the buildings that are more leasable, more viable in the market.
0: I mean, I've heard mixed reviews on that. It sounds like it's a very costly process to transform something that's designed as an office into, you know, livable spaces.
1: Um, It is costly, but there are cost savings as well. So takeaways from our seminar were two, I would say. One is that you can deliver a conversion about a year faster than you can deliver ground-up construction. So, when you think about where we are in the market right now, where there aren't a lot of construction loans being made, and I told you we had those 1,200 units under construction, they'll come online in the next, over the next, you know, five to 18 months. And then we're going to have a gap because there aren't new projects that started a month ago or 6 months ago. We're we're in this hiatus where there aren't new ground up projects starting. So, I think that's an opportunity in the market that we don't we won't ha- otherwise capture. The other thing is that the concrete and steel costs have gone up so much that if you can save the shell of that building, even if you're gutting the interior, putting in all new mechanical systems, everything else in the interior, and if the building is designed with the right depth so that it works for residential, um, there's a real opportunity there to recognize some cost savings that offset the retrofit costs. And it, it appears that it may be net neutral in cost. One of the buildings we were looking at is the JEA Tower, the old Universal Marion building. And those individuals in town thought that that had some real possibility for conversion.
0: Interesting. Um, I don't want this to be an afterthought, but just in the time we have remaining homelessness. I feel like there's a perception among people who work downtown that the problem is getting worse, if you will, that there's more people visibly home, unsheltered, living on the street, you know, tents. And what is your sense of is it is it becoming a a greater problem for downtown Jacksonville? And are you hearing that same thing?
1: I would say anecdotally, I'm hearing it. I don't know that I am seeing it or if I look back a few years ago when we had a kind of major group of folks living in tents along either State or Union Street, um, we don't have that now. So I'm not sure if it is. And if you look at the statistics, they're not saying that it's greater, but it certainly has heightened visibility and there have been some encounters that made people feel unsafe where normally it has been just a perception issue. Now there's actually been... some um, circumstances in which people feel unsafe. So I do think it's a problem we need to deal with. I think city council and the mayor are very much focused on that. And it's very important to downtown that we do focus on that. But kind of going back to the philosophy of um, relocating people out of downtown is not the answer. Um, That's not the only answer, right? I mean, there may be a problem with the concentration of service providers in downtown, but shifting that to some other neighborhood is not the solution. It really is, how do we provide supportive housing? How do we provide supportive services? How do, how do we address the larger issues that are the source of the homelessness? Well, you can find a link
0: to the Downtown Vision Report on the State of Downtown on the First Coast Connect website. Thank you so much to Lori Boyer, CEO of Downtown Investment Authority. Appreciate you being here. Thank you for having me. And we'll be right back with One Man's Quest to uncover the mystery of Florida's flamingo. We're back. Flamingos are emblematic of Florida, almost a visual shorthand for the Sunshine State. But the bird itself has been more legend than reality until recently. Michael Adno is a Florida-based writer and photographer who's published regularly in The New Yorker, The New York Times, and Bitter Southerner magazine. Most recently, he's become an intrepid flamingo tracker. Michael, welcome to First Coast Connect. Thanks so much for having me, Anne. Uh, appreciate you being here. So, Michael, what prompted you to begin your search for the fabled flamingo?
3: I uh, I was, you know, basically cleaning up after the storm, and I was just taking a break, and I looked at my phone, and I saw this photograph of these birds on the Sanibel Causeway. Um, and, you know, we were still dealing with basically the, the backside of the storm. So, I mean, like, these birds were like hunkered down in like rain and all these like crazy wind bands. And then I just started seeing all these reports. So I, you know, obviously being from Florida understood that like maybe they were just going to be here for, you know, maybe a week or a few days or something. And I just, uh, you know, that afternoon I just decided, okay, I'm just going to go and try and find them. The
0: article that you did for the New Yorker, you talk about the Florida's flamingos are a paradox that they're, practically synonymous with the Sunshine State. Talk a little bit about how it's used and and the reality of the flamingo in Florida.
3: So, like, growing up, like, I knew this, um, and I think that most Floridians are familiar with this, but, like, you know, uh, ephemera, like, postcards and, like, tourism advertisements and, like, just the image of the flamingo is, like, central to this, like, idea of Florida. But, um, you know, for me personally, like, I had never seen one in the wild. Uh, I had seen flamingos in different zoos. I had seen them in, like, kind of roadside, like, tourist attractions where you can, like, feed them by hand. But I'd never actually, like, seen one on a beach in a back bay and, you know, had, you know, grown up in the Keys and in the Everglades. And um, so that struck me as strange. Um, Not until this, this hurricane when all these birds showed up did I realize that, um, but that the bird was so central to Florida, yet few of us, if any, had actually ever seen one.
0: I think you say in your article that there was more than, you found more than 2,300 businesses in Florida registered with the word flamingo in their name.
3: Yeah. So I like, I looked through um, basically all the, you know, the records that I could find of businesses. And um, that was just one example that, you know, to me made clear, like how central you know that that bird is to our state because like you know say you you know you drive down us one right now I mean you could just play a game of count all the flamingo businesses like as you headed south
0: the bird was at one time native uh, to Florida and then uh, around 1900 or so reports of flamingos in the wild just kind of ended what happened
3: so that's what was curious about like learning about why the bird was central to Florida um, so essentially like there are these accounts and there's earlier accounts too from there's one from the 16th century actually in uh, the st. John's River but um, you know essentially what what people could tell is that at the the back end of the 19th century the reports were declining and it was around the same time when there was this big you know bird plume trade and you know the pink feathers of flamingos were, were, you know, especially desired. So what ended up happening is that these researchers that had, you know, basically studied, you know, started studying the flamingos realized that it was likely hunting that drove the bird out of, you know, what was once considered their natural habitat in South Florida. Um, And then that paired with, you know, the land boom and development, I think also led to them, you know, there's less habitat for the bird to return to. Um, But at the turn of the 20th century, what's really interesting is just as the bird is disappearing and, you know, the the reports are becoming less and less, um, it starts becoming like this integral part of the way that Florida marketed itself to the rest of America. I mean, that's like when Florida is really... You know, seeing this big growth of development and population, and so you get you know these hotels that are named the Flamingo, and uh, you know they had actually imported flamingos um, to as uh, like some kind of you know attraction for guests. Mm-hmm. Like you know they had flamingos on the grounds, and then um, in the '30s there was this racetrack in Hialeah in Miami that imported. Um, a bigger group of flamingos um, and they're actually still there to this day, they nest there Um, but those flamingos originally were imported from Cuba and then by the mid-century it's just like you know the ways in which it shows up is like in architecture and then like it's, you know, there's restaurants named after it, there's drinks named after it they appear on shirts and in advertising and um, what is funny is that the bird was not in the state. I mean, there were such few sightings of the bird throughout that part of the 20th century, the mid-20th century, and yet anywhere you would go in Miami at that point, you would ultimately come across an image of the bird.
0: Yeah, I was thinking that there probably, anybody born after 1980 or 1990 probably doesn't know that there was a time when pink plastic flamingos were displayed on lawns without irony, you know, actually just as yeah. lawn decorations. Uh, so- yeah, yeah. Go ahead.
3: Oh, no, I was going to say that, you know, that um, was funny too because that didn't even come from Florida, those long flamingos that, you know, were basically created by this plastics company. And now, I mean, of course, I get what you're saying. Is that there was this turn where they became this kind of like kitschy, campy, funny thing that people would, you know, put in their lawns and, you know, still see rounds there.
0: Tell us a little bit about your journey then to find the flamingo. Once you saw that they'd kind of taken up residence on the West coast of Florida, what did you do? And and did you find some?
3: I went, um, so I live in Sarasota and I spent a lot of time in the water and, you know, outdoors. And I had a sense of maybe where they would show up just based on where I had seen the other reports. Um, so I just kind of went to like a remote area that, that evening. And, uh, I hung out for a while and, you know, didn't see any birds. And, um, it was, you know, it was funny because the storm had just passed and, you know, everybody was already back at the beach. So there were just like, you know, a bunch of guys at the beach hanging out and it's actually like a nude beach. So there were like, you know, some men, you know, nude, and then some guys speedos and that kind of thing. And, you know, I kind of wrote about that in the piece. And then, I went home and I just started looking through all the reports I could find. And, you know, long story short is that through just like combing the Internet, I was able to find that there was this group of birds in Pinellas County. And so I called a friend and asked if him and his wife wanted to go with me. And we went that morning or the next morning. We went and, uh, you know, kind of snuck into this area that's part of this park um, before sunrise. And that's where I thought these birds would be and the first place we showed up they weren't there so I was like oh this is gonna be really difficult but we went just a little further north um, and there was like a clue in some of the pictures that I saw and so I was basically trying to orient myself based around this this um, marker that I saw in the photograph it was like a water and tower or something we... yeah it was yeah. A, radio a radio tower and so when we went a little further north, You know, we did the same thing, kind of ran out into this area, and fortunately there was a bird. There was a single bird um, just alone on the beach there, and then that bird was basically spooked by this uh, photographer that had shown up and had kind of like crossed its line of sight. And then the bird took off and flew into this little basin of mangroves, and basically we followed it in there, and uh, there was another group of birds. So um, once, uh, you know, once we found them, I mean, that was just like a really kind of magical, like growing up and being like a Floridian, never having seen one, like that was a real reward and kind of like a treat, especially after like all the storm cleanup.
0: It's a great discovery. You do other writing about Florida. I wanted to ask you at least a little bit about a story you did not long ago for the New York Times about the disappearing surf in St. Augustine. Um, you spoke to some longtime residents and surfers there. What brought you to that story? I... Oh, it looks like we lost him. Well, sadly, uh, I'll tell you a little bit about that story. He did talk to Xander Morton, a longtime surfer from St. Augustine, and Walter Coker, a longtime surfer from St. Augustine, um, both of whom talk about how beach renourishment in that area and the taking of sand from the St. Augustine Inlet and depositing it basically destroyed two major surfing locations one called blowholes and one called middles um, and ended up tracking a lot of that to the problem of climate change and the need for beach renourishment Um, it doesn't look like we're going to be able to get michael back on the phone so i'd like to say thanks to him for being on the program and talking to us about his flamingo search Um, it was a great discussion Uh, we're going to return in just a little bit we're going to be talking to our favorite sportscaster Uh, the illustrious Alessandra Pombrion about the weekend in sports, not the Jaguars this time, but our favorite football teams from Florida and Georgia. We'll see you in just a minute.
4: WJCT and Vistar Credit Union are honoring the memory of Fred Rogers by celebrating 21 years of giving back to the community with the annual Mr. Rogers Sweater Drive. The drive runs through November 30th and accepts new and gently used sweaters, jackets, blankets, and new socks and underwear. Contributions may be dropped off at WJCT and all Vistar Credit Union branches, Suddeth Moving and Logistics, and the Tom Bush family of dealerships. For more information, log on to WJCT.org. Contributions will be donated to selected nonprofit facilities within the First Coast area. TEACH is a day-long conference created to engage, empower, and inspire teachers.
0: I have been so
1: inspired by all the teachers and future teachers that we have at this conference, the TEACH conference in Jacksonville 2023, and it has been a
5: positive day that has just really re-inspired me and got me really excited to go
4: back into the classroom. Early Bird tickets are available for $40. For tickets and more info, go to wjct.org teach. Ever wonder what to say after thank you for your service? Join WJCT public media and community partners for a conversation about the rewards and challenges of military life and exploring ways to express gratitude for someone's service. To RSVP for this free event, visit wjct.org events.
1: On the next Fresh Air, award-winning filmmaker Sofia Coppola tells us about her new film, Priscilla, which looks at the love affair and age difference between Elvis and Priscilla Presley from Priscilla's point of view. We'll also hear about her 30-year career and behind-the-scenes look at some of her films. Join us.
5: Today at noon on WJCT News 89.9.
3: I'm Peter O'Dowd. In the spring of 2016, a wildfire ignited in the forest of northern Alberta that would forever change the lives of the people who lived in its path. The towering inferno turned 2,500 homes to ash and gave us a hint
2: of what's to come. We haven't seen what climate change has in store for us in the 21st century. That's next time on Here and Now.
4: Today at 2 on WJCT News 89.9.
0: How well or how badly is the media covering Israel's war against Hamas? News organizations have deployed their best correspondents and producers to the region. But verifying fact from fiction is getting harder. And with journalists barred from entering Gaza, how do you tell the whole story? Next time on 1A, we've got the latest on the ground and examine the challenges newsrooms face covering the war.
2: Today, starting at 10 on WJCT News 89.9.
0: Welcome back. Last week was a bye week for the Jacksonville Jaguars, but we didn't want to waste a perfectly good opportunity to talk football with Alessandra Pombrion, sportscaster at our news partner, WJXT. Hey, Alessandra.
5: Hi, how are you? Good morning. Good morning.
0: Thanks for being here. So the team didn't play this weekend, but Mm -hmm. despite that, they're standing in the AFC improved. Explain this.
5: Yeah, I think... Right now, the Jags, they're going to host um, the 49ers on Sunday, this upcoming Sunday, uh, which will be a very good game. So if you're going to that, you're in for a very nice treat. Um, When you look at the AFC as a whole, I think the Jaguars are obviously excelling right now. I mean, they're kind of in there. I think the Baltimore Ravens are a very good team. The Kansas City Chiefs are showing some weakness this season. And then when you look at the 49ers as well, they're a very good team. I think when you see how the Jags finished the first half of the season, there's a good vibe with them. They're on an upward trajectory, hopefully. You know, they come out of the bye week just as strong. So I think that's why right now they're really being considered as a true possible Super Bowl contender. Um, You know, this past weekend, when you look at the slate of games that, you know, were played You know, it's hard to say why exactly, but because they didn't play. But I think because of how they ended the bye week on a five-game winning streak, um, very, very strongly, or they finished the first half of the season very strongly. I think that's why, um, you know, they're racing right now. I mean, some people may say they may be the best team in the AFC. I don't know about that, really. Yeah, I don't know about that, but they are very good, um, and hopefully, they can continue this you know, for the second half of the season, because this is when it's really going to start ramping up. It's kind of like November for college football is like when a lot of teams say this is when you win championships, really. Um, same thing for the second half of this uh, NFL season for the Jaguars. So thank you for queuing up that segue. Yeah, get right.
0: <laughs> we're going to talk about a few college games this weekend. So start us off with what you thought were the the big takeaways from our favorite, you know, Florida, Georgia teams.
5: Yeah, so we'll start with Georgia since they're number two ranking or ranked team in the college football playoffs. They beat um, number 12 ranked Missouri 31 to 21. My favorite part about this game was kind of the game ceiling interception in the fourth quarter by defensive tackle Nazir Stackhouse. Um, It was what Kirby Smart called the biggest play of the game. Um, You know, he's a big, big boy, and it basically, uh, I don't know why the Missouri quarterback let it go, but I think he was just trying to dump it out and. And you know Stackhouse caught it, and he ran. Um, he says that he got up to 18 miles per hour. My favorite <laughs> Kirby Smart quote, probably ever, is that he said, uh, "There's no chance. Only way he can hit 18 miles per hour is on a bike or in his car," <laughs> which I think is awesome. Um, but the Bulldogs are on the 26th uh, consecutive win streak. They're nine and zero. They are number two. Ohio State. Ohio State beat them for number one. I think possibly. Georgia could increase to number one. Ohio State had some troubles with Rutgers this past weekend, which is wild. Um, so possibly Georgia may be able to come out as number one uh, when the rankings, the second week of rankings, come out tomorrow. And they've got a game with
0: Georgia Tech. I guess they're going to probably kill Georgia Tech.
5: And yeah, in a couple weeks, that will be their final game of the season will be rivalry week against um, Georgia Tech. This weekend, they're going to host number 10 Ole Miss. Um, it's going to be a very tough game. Mm. I do think they should be able to beat them. Um, if they do, I think they definitely will solidify a spot into the SEC championship. That still is yet to be confirmed, but I think it's going to be Georgia Alabama. Since Alabama beat LSU this past weekend, uh, I think that that's going to happen. Um, and then when you talk about Florida State, who's the number four team in the uh, college football playoffs? They beat Pitt twenty four to seven. Which, yes, that may seem like a big win twenty four seven. Uh, but that was a close game, and I was shocked. You know, uh, FSU didn't earn their first spot in the ACC title game for the first time since 2014. The Seminoles were without their two-star receivers, Ken Coleman and Johnny Wilson. You definitely could see that. But they did have a pretty big game from Ja'Kai Douglas, who stepped up for Coleman. Um, and, you know, he said after the game, it's great, quote, it's great that we get a chance to show the ACC, the whole world, that Florida State is back. And I do think they are back, but I do think, that this game, and especially the beginning of the season against Boston College, showed weaknesses for the Seminoles. And I'm a little skeptical that they'll be able to make a playoff run. I I just don't see them playing in the national championship, which I know a lot of Seminoles fans may not like that. But I just don't think that they've competed against top-tier opponents throughout the season that will prepare them for the playoff. Whereas if you look at the SEC specifically, and even the Pac-12 this season, which is wild for Washington – I think that they've played in enough big games where they, when they get to the college football playoff semifinal, they'll be able to deal with the pressure and, you know, the a whole spotlight that you have, whereas Florida State, I just don't think they've played in big games. Um, you know, and I, I just, I don't think the ACC is that of a powerhouse conference, which I know some people may disagree, but. Going to get some haters. Yeah, I know, but listen, that's it's, it's what I believe at least. Um, so FSU, they host Miami on Saturday, which will be a huge game for the Florida State Seminoles. I think they're going to beat Miami. Miami fell off. They just, they started well, and I, I don't know what happened to them. And then them. just real quick, what what
0: is the situation with the the Gators at the, at the Swamp?
5: Yeah, and it's not good. Oh, my gosh. Someone called the ambulance. Um, Florida <laughs> State, or sorry, Florida lost to Arkansas State 39-36 in overtime. Um, you know, they're 5-3. and three. If they are going to get into a bowl game, I, that's well, they are going to need a prayer for that. They're at number 14 LSU, at number 12 Missouri, and they host number four Florida State. So,
0: Well, thank you so much, Alessandra Pompriano. We appreciate you being here. That's our program. Thanks to all of our guests and callers. Our executive producer is David Luckin. Our producer is Stacey Bennett. Our associate producer is Kathy Waterman. And our director is Brady Corum. Our theme music is performed by Club de Belugas. Tune in tomorrow when we'll be speaking with community activists from the Brentwood neighborhood who say the city excluded them from talks about an upcoming morgue to be built in their neighborhood. We'll see you then.
4: Support for First Coast Connect is provided by Baptist Health and the North Florida TPO.